course, for our visitors. If, uh, if you don't care much for the preaching, I would just don't judge the church by my preaching. Just come back next week, and the uh, pastor will be here. Uh, I guess that goes for you uh, church members as well. Second Chronicles chapter 29. We'll read the first two verses. Uh, but we're really going to be covering the entire chapter, um, but uh, time does not allow us to read through, um, so we'll just kind of grab a few verses here and there going through the chapter, but we'll just start with the first two verses, Second Chronicles chapter 29, and again starting in verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the message here this morning. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for all you've done. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to come into your house to sing your praises. Lord, um, to settle down and to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that um, I be filled with your spirit, that I say only what you would have me to say. And uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit... Touch the hearts that are present here um, with the different needs, whether it be um, salvation or, or what else might be present. Lord, I pray um, that we all be yielded and uh, to your Spirit's leading. And Lord, I pray that you just work in a great way and to bless the junior church going on in the other building as well. Um, just to bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Second Chronicles chapter 29 there, of course, uh, begins the record of Hezekiah's kingship. Um, he is, uh, we'll see, he'll, he's just assuming the throne, and he's taking over the country when the country is in horrible shape. Um, his father was King Ahaz, who was one of the most godless kings that the kingdom of Judah had. Um, again, if you are not familiar with the history of the kingdom of Israel, you had King Saul, the first king of Israel, then you had David, and then Solomon, and then after Solomon's death, the kingdom split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, also called the kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And they would follow David's line. Anybody, all the descendants of David, all the kings of the kingdom of Judah were descendants of David. And Hezekiah here, of course, um, is a descendant of David. That's why it refers to David as you know, David his father hath done. Obviously one of the great grandfathers uh, that he had. But King Ahaz was his direct father, and he was, again, a very godless king. Um, he had really had run Jude, the kingdom of Judah into the ground. Um, the temple, when it was in use, was actually being used to worship false gods. They had, Ahaz had seen a, an altar that he liked to a, to a false god, and so he had moved the altar that God had established for the temple, moved it off to the side, and placed this other altar in its place. It was a horrible time. Um, idolatry, obviously, was very prevalent during this time, and corruption was rampant. You see that a, a book of Isaiah deals with some of the details of King Ahaz's reign. Some of the chapters are addressed uh, during that time. But also, the, the country itself was just in shambles. Because of the idolatry and God's removal of protection on the kingdom of Judah, you had raiding parties going in from basically all the surrounding countries were raiding into the kingdom of Judah, raiding the villages, taking uh, women and children back, taking all the loot. Some, sometimes they would just keep the settlement. They would just say, okay, this is ours now. And uh, so Judah was in a horrible state because of Ahaz's wickedness and God's judgment on Judah because of that. 
So Hezekiah gets to the throne, and uh, we'll see that the principles he follows turns Judah back to God, and it is exactly what the nation needed at this time. You can think about it. When a king ascending the throne in this situation, what would your first act be? How would, how would you even begin to get the country back to some semblance of respect or to where it would be a prosperous country? And so Hezekiah does exactly what he needs to, and that's what we're going to look at. And it's going to be a pattern, really. What, I, what we're going to be looking at is rekindling a relationship with God. Rekindling that relationship with God. So sometimes in our life we get almost to the same, maybe not as bad as the kingdom of Judah was, in our, spiritually speaking, but we get to a point where like there's, we're just not as prosperous. Um, we're not serving God the way we're used to. Our relationship with God has, has cooled off a little bit maybe. Um, and so we need this, and I think it's going to happen. We have the ebbs and flows of our spiritual life. We're not going to be super spiritual 24-7, you know, 365 days a year, there's going to be some times where we suddenly realize we're not as close to God as we used to be. Um, and so Hezekiah, what he does here to turn the nation back to God, gives a great template for us of how to rekindle that relationship with God. And so we'll see, we'll look at what he did, and we'll see how that, uh, how that impacts our life and how we can rekindle that fire, rekindle that relationship with God, get back to where uh, we should be with our Father. So the first thing Hezekiah did was he gave God preeminence in the kingdom of Judah. And we see this because of what he immediately does. He ascends the throne. Let's look at verse number 3. And he, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And then you'll go, he gives a charge to the children of, uh, to the Levites, those that would keep the temple. But let's look at verse 17. So the Levites and the priests following the charge that Hezekiah had laid on him, now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify. So Hezekiah, on the very first day of his reign, goes down to the temple, opens it up, and says, we need to fix the temple. It is in a state of disarray. Think about what a, when a president here in our country comes to, uh, comes to power. You know, you have the first hundred days of his reign. What, he's going to set the, the pattern for his, his reign. Yeah, that's how some people view it, I guess. For his, for his uh, term. He's going to set the, the pattern for his term in the first hundred days. And you can kind of guess how he's going to be within the first hundred days. Hezekiah doesn't wait a hundred days. He says the very first day of his reign... He goes down and he opens up the temple. He's going to, God is going to have preeminence in under my rule. God is going to be uh, preeminent. And in order to have a right relationship with God, God can't be just a part of your life. Even if he's a major part of your life, he has to have preeminence. He has to be over your life. He can't just be a part of your life. He can't be the weekend part of when you go to church. Um, he has to be preeminent over, he has to be influencing and ruling over all of our, your life, all aspects of it. The Bible says in Colossians 1.8 that he is to have the preeminence. He is supposed to be ruling in our life. And our purpose for life is really all about God. You have the different philosophical questions. What are, why are we here? What's the purpose?
purpose to life. And, the, and people try to come up with these different ideas or answers to that question. But the purpose of our life is given in Revelation 4, verse number 11. When the Bible says that we were created for God's pleasure. And if we are not pleasing God with how we live, then we are not fulfilling the purpose for our, for our life. We may be trying to fulfill some other purpose, but it's not the purpose that we were made for. Just as a screwdriver may be able to hammer in a nail, but that's not what it was made for. We may be able to do other things in this life and have limited success with it, but we were made to please God. We were not made to please ourselves, though we do it very naturally. We were not even made to please others. We were made for the express purpose of pleasing God. His preeminence. Everything in our life should be about pleasing our Creator. But so often, we try to limit His preeminence to just religious activities. And then we take preeminence in the other areas of our life. We'll say, God, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the preeminence in how we worship you and, and when we come to church and, and we'll sing all your praises. But when we go home, I want the preeminence in my life. I want to dictate how I live and how we spend our money, what career choices I make. I want to, make, I want to be preeminent in that. I'm going to make the decision in that. I'll have the final authority. But that's not how it should work. That is not a right relationship with God. In order for us to have the right relationship with God, in order for us to be fulfilling the very purpose of our life, every aspect of our life must be viewed through the lens of, is this pleasing to God? Am I pleasing my maker? Again, when we say, you know, God, Christ must have preeminence, it seems like an abstract idea. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, so it's kind of this mystical type of thing. But it's very, very applicable in our life. It's easily practical for us. Are we pleasing God in every aspect of our life? Does he have the preeminence? Does he decide how we act? Does he have the presiding influence over our life? So we must ask ourselves, as we go about our day, as we get up and think about our morning routine, is that pleasing to God? Is that putting God first? When we go to work, how we behave at work, is that pleasing to God? How we interact with our family, with our spouse, with our children, is that pleasing to God? Or are we all about pleasing ourselves or pleasing others? It's not really a gray gray area here. There's going to be one master in your life. No man can serve two, Christ told us himself. So who is preeminent in your life? Who is making the decision? Who are you seeking to please with your life? And that will tell you who has preeminence in your life. In order for us to rekindle that relationship with God, God must have preeminence. And he can only do that when we we are seeking to please him with our lives. That's the only time... He will have preeminence in our life. Otherwise, we are seeking to wrest control away from him. So Hezekiah comes to the throne. He says, God is going to be 
the priority here. God is going to have preeminence in how we live, in how my kingdom is structured, in the priorities of my kingdom. God is first. He has preeminence over the conduct of the kingdom. And, in or, and as we continue, you must be prompt. Christ must have preeminence. God must have preeminence. But we must be prompt in obedience. Let's look at verse 11 of chapter 29. He's giving the charge to the Levites. Because, of course, they were the ones who would have to clear out the temple. He was not supposed to go into the holy place. It would be the Levites and the priests that would have to do that. But verse 11. My sons, be not now negligent. For the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and burn incense. He is exhorting and commanded the Levites here, look, you need to not be negligent. Don't be slack in performing what you are supposed to perform. The Levites had a special charge. The priests had a special charge that had been given to them by God. They were the ones who were supposed to perform the ministry of God here in the temple. And all of us have been given a special charge by God that we have for our life. Of how, what ministry we have been put in. What family we have been put in and how we are supposed to interact with that. We all have a special charge from God and we need to fulfill it without negligence. Be prompt. We must be prompt. This is critical to our walk with God. If we do not have a sense of urgency in, to please God in our life, then we'll never get around to pleasing Him with our life. That sense of urgency must be in place. And it is something only we can do. Hezekiah, could, as I mentioned, he could not go into the temple and clean it up and perform the ministry, the service of the temple. He was not allowed to do that according to the law. Pastor cannot go into your life and fix it up for you. He cannot provide you the fervency or the passion needed in your life. The promptness. That has to come from you. He can encourage you just as Hezekiah is encouraging the priests and the Levites. Don't be negligent. But our pastor cannot live your life for you. You have to be prompt. It has to come from your own actions. It is an individual choice and one that must be made with diligence. And let's look at a couple reasons why this promptness is required. Why we can't be negligent. First one is, look at where negligence leads. Now, negligent here, the, the Hebrew word negligent, um, or what we find here, the definition also says, it has an idea of to mislead. And boy, isn't that the case. When we procrastinate, when we get negligent, man, we can deceive even ourselves. I'll do it. I'll do it tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes. I'll do it the next day. I'll do it on the weekend. We're negligent, and we just keep misleading ourselves, and we just go all over the place. We don't actually perform what we're supposed to perform. We push it off, and that's what negligence does. That's what procrastination does. And in our spiritual life, it is so dangerous to be a spiritual, slothful person. Is, is incredibly dangerous. You'll never have a right walk with God if you do not act with diligence. The Apostle Peter stressed the importance of diligence numerous times in his second epistle. And let's turn there to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Second Peter, chapter one. You see in verse five, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And he continues on, gives the list. Most of us are familiar with it. Verse nine. But he that lacketh these things, the things that he said to add to your faith with all diligence, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Peter here is saying you need to be diligent and strengthening your Christian life. Don't be negligent. You need to add some diligence in your walk with God. And he reiterates it in verse 10 when he says that, look, if you need to make sure, you have to give diligence to make sure you're calling an election sure. And then he says, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. If we are diligent in our walk with God, it will make sure that we never fall off from serving God. If we remain diligent. Now, the inverse of that, of course, is if we are not diligent, we are much more susceptible to falling to start to live for ourselves rather than living for God. And there's no better person to exhort such diligence than the Apostle Peter. Because he thought he was okay in his walk with God when they entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told the Lord, I will never deny you. And then the Lord is taken. And Peter, give him credit, he was... He followed far off, but he got there. But then when he got there, he denied the Lord three times. He thought he was fine. He was fully convinced that he would be able to die for the Lord Jesus Christ that night, if it was required. But then when push came to shove, he realized he was not. And so now at the end of his life, as he's writing Second Peter, he is exhorting the Christians, give diligence. I know what a lack of diligence leads to. Give diligence. And then, let's look at chapter 3 of Second Peter. He gives another reason for diligence. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Really, you could pick it up in verse 9, read through. I will just pick it up, just uh, read verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, look for the coming of the Lord is what he's referring to, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. The imminent return of Christ is another reason we must not be negligent. We must have diligence in our walk with God. We know Christ is coming. Brother Jordan referenced it here this morning. Maybe very soon. We don't know. But we do know his return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And how will we be found of him? If we want to be found without spot, blameless, we have to have that diligence in place. If we want to have confidence that his appearing that John referenced... We must have that diligence in place. We can't be negligent in our walk with God. Say, I'll improve my walk with God tomorrow. I'll give more time to prayer tomorrow. Or I'll do it later today. Later rarely comes. Don't be negligent. 
Don't leave off. Don't mislead yourself. Deceive yourself. Give diligence. Don't be negligent in your walk with God. Those who seek to rekindle the relationship with God later will find that later never comes. So we must be prompt in our walk with God, in our return to God. And think about, you can think about the uh, prodigal son as well. When he says, I'm going to return to my father, he didn't say, I'm doing it tomorrow. He started right then. And he re- made the long return back. Sometimes the return back is long. But we must not be negligent. Don't put it off. Be prompt. Give that diligence. Paul, The Apostle Paul told us in the book of Romans, it is high time to awaken out of sleep. For now is our salvation closer than what we believed. The return of Christ is imminent. It is right around the corner. It's high time to awaken out of sleep. We sometimes fall asleep and we perform tasks for God sleepwalking spiritually. It's just a routine. We can do it in our sleep. It's high time to awaken out of that sleep and give diligence. Don't be negligent in your walk with God. We must be prompt. Let's turn back to Second Chronicles 29. We'll see the third point here. So we, God must have preeminence. We must be prompt in our walk with God. And we must prepare. We must prepare. Verse 15, we'll begin reading here. We'll read a few verses here. Talking about the Levites. And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. Excuse me. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the book, brook Kidron. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify, and on the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the Lord, so they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and in the sixteenth day of the first month they made an end. Then they went in to, king, to Hezekiah the king, and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering, with all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table, with all the vessels thereof. Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz in his reign did cast away in his transgression, have we prepared and sanctified, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. So they're going in and they're cleaning out the temple. They are preparing the temple for use, for the Lord's use. And when we think about how our temple, our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, as 1 Corinthians tells us, we need to prepare our temple, for the Lord's use. Again, before reestablishing worship here, the temple had to be usable. Uh, it was just in a state of complete disarray. The priest mentioned a few things. The altar of burnt offerings, that's the one that um, King Ahaz would have moved and put an idolatrous altar in its place. Now they're getting that back to where it should be and back ready for use. The candles... That would have had to be in the holy place. The, the tables of showbread the priests mentioned here as well. All these different things and the, the different instruments that were needed uh, had to be prepared. They had to be sanctified. And if, if a priest was going to try 
to go in and perform service, do the, the work of the Lord without first preparing it, he would have been extremely either incomplete or ineffective with what he was supposed to be doing. Because things had to be prepared first. And the same is true in our life. If we try to serve God without first preparing to serve God, we'll be, our service will either be incomplete or it will be highly ineffective. So we must prepare to serve God. And we see two things here that are mentioned. Um, they remove hindrances to the service, and then they renew some things that were lost. So when we go in and we're going to prepare our lives to serve the Lord, we need to remove some hindrances that are in our life. Oftentimes, things creep into our life without us even realizing it. And then before we know it, it's hindering our walk with God. When it first entered our life, it was fine in its proper place. It wasn't hindering our walk. But then it starts to creep in and creep in. And soon, all of a sudden, you realize, wait, this is, this is taking time away from God. This is taking priority away from God. And sometimes it just creeps in. Sometimes we make the conscious decision, I'm going to bring this in. And I don't care if it's going to ruin my walk with God, but I'm going to bring it in. That's what King Ahaz did um, during his reign. But regardless of how the hindrances got there, they must be removed. If things are keeping us from being pleasing to God in any area of our life, from ha- Him having preeminence in any area of our life, they must be removed. Think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. The author of Hebrews saying you need to lay aside every weight, everything that is holding you back from being an effective runner in the Christian race, you need to let go of. You need to remove the weight. Sometimes they're not sin when they first come in, as I already mentioned. Sometimes they are things that, if they are in a vacuum, they are perfectly fine. I think sports is a great example of this. I love, I love playing sports, I love watching sports. But we have all seen and known people whose sports is their God. It takes over their life. And in, in a vacuum, there is nothing wrong with these sports. But they can quickly hinder your walk with God and become a serious weight as you are trying to run the Christian race. So we need to remove those hindrances. Not just, we see sin, and obviously we know we have to remove sin, but also think about if there's anything that's distracting you from your service for God, from your walk with God, and that needs to be removed as well. But also we need to renew, we may need to renew some things that were lost. And here the, the priest came and they said, look, all the, we, we've removed all of King Ahaz's stuff that was in the temple, and now we're, we've, got, we've cleansed the, the house of God, with the altar of burnt offerings is now ready for use, we've got the table of showbread, we've renewed those things that have been put aside, that have been lost. And sometimes we have something that, for, in our lives, that was a staple in our lives to help us serve God. And then it just slips by the wayside. Oftentimes, again, it's going to be a very gradual slipping away. Something that was in our life, and then you look around and you're like, why isn't that in my life anymore? I used to, I used to do that. I used to have this in place in my life. Where did it go? 
Maybe it was that longer prayer time with God. Maybe it was Christian fellowship. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm not spending any time with the brethren anymore. I'm not spending as much time as I used to. I used to, used to partake in all the fellowship. And I used to be there on these different events that we have, whether it be, we've got the, the uh, Wild Game Supper coming up, I believe it's in November. These different events that the church has and pastors put in place to give us a time to fellowship with each other. And maybe we've done, we had that in place in our life, and then we look back and like, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. Other things have become more important to me. Or maybe it was a standard that used to be in place. And you kind of, kind of lost interest. Oh, I don't really know why that's there. I'll just, we'll just let it slide. Regardless of what it is, sometimes the preparation, all the preparation that is needed is the simple renewing of what used to be. Bring it back into the service. The altar burnt offerings were set off to the side. They brought it back to where it needed to be. A renewing of something that used to be in our life. What did David say? Psalm 51 was the sin of Bathsheba. We sing it every Sunday morning. Renew. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Give it back. It's, it was missing. Obviously we know it was missing since the sin of Bathsheba, but I think it was probably missing a little bit before then. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. I used to have it but it's gone now. And it needs to be back in place. Renew the things that are lost. So we need to prepare. These are all part of the preparation to serve God, to be used by God in His service. And let's look at verse 31 of Second Chronicles 29. And then we'll look at our final point here. We need to press forward. We need to press forward. Progress forward in our walk with God. Sometimes we think getting right with God is the destination. When we've been away from Him, and we have that desire now, that passion for Him to get back to God, we think if we just get back right with God, that's the destination. That is not the destination. That's just the first step. Verse 31, then Hezekiah answered and said, Now ye have consecrated yourselves unto the Lord. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And the congregation brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were, as were of a free heart burnt offerings. Hezekiah says, look, you've consecrated yourself unto the Lord. We've made it to this point. That's not what I was aiming for. That was not my goal, just to get consecrated, get the temple consecrated again. Now, move forward. Press forward in the Christian life. Don't think that, okay, well, I'm back, back right with God. I've got the prayer time back. I've got my, my, my daily Bible reading back. I've got the being in, in church, the, the three services that the church has. I've got that back, and now I'm set. No, that's just the beginning. Press forward. That is not the destination. That is the first step. Press forward in the Christian life. The consecration was needed. Could not be, you could not progress past that without the consecration. It was needed. But we should never be satisfied. We should never grow complacent in our Christian life with where we're at. The congregation, Hezekiah, the priests, they were not complacent with just consecrating the temple and getting it ready for use. 
Now what do we see? Sacrifices, thank offerings, free will offerings. Now people are giving out of the, out of the desire just to please God. Now, no, no longer just something that was required by the law, the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. Now they're moving past that and giving God out of the uh, freeness of their heart. They're moving forward in their walk with God. We should never be satisfied with just making the first step. Keep pressing forward. Keep drawing closer to God. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll read verses 13 and 14 here. Philippians 3 verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If there was ever a man who could sit back and say, I have done enough for God, it would be the Apostle Paul. At this time in his life, he has written numerous epistles. He has started dozens of churches. He has strengthened the, the churches there. He has helped resolve doctrinal issues with the churches as well. And if there's ever a man who could say, you know what, man, I've done a lot for God. I could just kind of take it easy now. I don't have to keep pressing forward with such vigor, with such, such a physical demand on my body. If there was any, ever a man who could say, I've, done, I've sacrificed my body enough for God, it would be the Apostle Paul as well. The many beatings that he took, the many shipwrecked. But that wasn't his attitude. He's like, forgetting those things which are behind. I know all these things that are done, I'm going to forget them. That's not enough for my maker. That's not enough to serve my Lord. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep sacrificing my body. I'm going to keep putting my body through horrible things. And not, not just the beatings and everything, but just the physical hardships of walking everywhere and being tossed on a ship at sea. And they don't have these sleep number beds back then either. You're sleeping on hard planks or on hard, hard uh, ground. Man, I get, I get sore after a basketball game. I wake up the next morning, I'm like, Argh. just imagine how Paul felt. But he didn't say, you know what? I've served God enough. I, I think I can take it easy. I'll let Timothy, I'll let Titus take over, and they can be the ones that go through all these hardships. But he said, I'm going to press toward the mark of the high, prize of the high calling of God. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to progress in my Christian life. I'm going to seek to do more for God, not less. Don't be complacent. Keep going for God. Paul didn't glory in what he had already been what had already been accomplished in his life. He was focused on continuing to go forward in his walk with God. And we when we think about our own lives, and especially with the temple, and they consecrate the temple, they get it cleansed, they get it purified. If you want to put it in our terms, they confess their sins, they've forsaken their sins now, but that's not where it ends. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. 
says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You have salvation now. It's by the grace of God. You do not have to earn it. It is all through the grace of Jesus Christ. But the thought does not end there. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Don't just get complacent with your salvation. Say, well, I'm saved. I may have done a few things for God, but I'm good now. I, don't, I, can, just, I can worry about pleasing myself, about taking care of myself now. No, we are ordained to serve God. We're ordained to do these good works. We're created for that purpose. We were created to please God. And God is not pleased when His children say, I'm, I'm just going to start serving a little bit more half-heartedly. I'm not going to serve you with all my heart anymore. You think that pleases God? Just as if, a child, if your child came and said to you, you know what, I know you told me to clean my room, so I cleaned half of it. But that's all I'm going to clean. Would that please the parent? No. There's more to be done. And there will always be more to do in our walk with God. There will always be more to press on toward. Don't slack off. Don't get to the point where, yeah, everything's good. I've, I've given God, you know, I've consecrated myself, I, you know, I'm saved now, we've got the sin offerings in place, you know, I, everything's good now, I've confessed my sin. No, keep going. Now that you have consecrated the temple, he said, let's keep, move forward to more for God. And if you would continue reading into the next chapter, just an amazing account of the revival that sweeps through the kingdom of Judah. And it was all based on these principles that Hezekiah put in place. Let's have God be preeminent. Let's be prompt. Don't be negligent in the service for God. Prepare to serve Him. And then keep going forward. Keep pressing forward in your service for God, in your walk with God. This is how we can rekindle that relationship with God. If it's gotten a little stale, if it's gotten a little cold, this is how we rekindle that fire. Again, giving God preeminence, that's going to be first. If you give Him preeminence, the rest generally will follow. Give Him preeminence, be prompt, prepare, and then keep pressing forward. Don't get complacent. Don't reach a point where you think you've done enough for God. Someone else can do the rest. Keep that desire, that hunger for God in place, for serving Him and for loving Him even more. So this chapter again gives us a great template to follow. And revival is, is always needed in our life. It's not like the fire can ever grow too great to, for God, our fire for God. It can never start to get out of control where it becomes destructive to our life. But the Christian life is a marathon. You're going to keep having to run and run and run and run and run. And it gets old sometimes. That's why we need to make sure God has that preeminence that we are loving Him, and that our service for Him is born out of that love for Him. We need to rekindle that fire in our life. Rekindle the relationship with God. Now maybe, as we close here, maybe you've never had a relationship with God. This is kind of all new to you. What I want to tell you is God wants to have that relationship with you. 
And the reason you, have not, you cannot have a relationship with God right now is because your sins are separating you from God. And not only are your sins separating you from a relationship with God, they are condemning you to an eternity in a lake of fire. Because God says, whosoever dies without Christ will go to that place, to hell. But again, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in order to restore that relationship with all of mankind, with you as an individual, with the entirety of mankind, he sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to this earth. And God took on human flesh, lived in this life, lived a perfect life, never sinned. Because in order to get to heaven, you have to have perfection in place. Nobody's perfect outside of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross. And while he was on the cross, God the Father put the sins of all of mankind on him. And he judged his own son for your sins. For my sin. Think about all that I've done. And I can't believe God would take that upon himself and become the very thing that he hates. But then you take it a step further. God, was Jesus Christ, was judged for the sins of these mass murderers that we hear about. Whether it be Hitler or Stalin. For the child molester. That's the kind of love. That's how much... God wants to restore the relationship with mankind. That he is willing to become that sin. To take that sin upon himself. And be judged for it. So that he can restore that relationship with man. So sin now is being judged by God. Christ has the sin of the entire world upon himself. And the wages of sin is death. So Christ died. paid the penalty for the sins of the entire race of, of the entire human race went to hell three days and three and after three days and three nights he rose again from the dead defeating death and hell the only one that could do that no other person can go to hell to pay for their sins and come out but Jesus Christ because he is God defeated death and hell, rose again from the dead. He is now at the right hand of the Father, but He's offering salvation to everyone. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your sins have already been paid for. Why would you go to hell and pay for them again? All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation. And how do you do that? Number one, obviously acknowledging your sin. Know that what your sin is going to lead you to if it is not resolved. Number two, recognize there is nothing you can do of your own strength or in your own might. There is no way you can escape hell and enter heaven. And number three, put your faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ that he is the only way to escape this punishment for sin. He's already paid for it. Now he's offering you his righteousness. 
His perfect life. Now he offers to you so that if you accept that gift of salvation, now you have his perfect life on you. And when God the judge looks at you, he no longer sees your sins, all the lies, all the stealing or whatever that is in your life. All he sees is Christ Jesus' perfect life. And he says, yes, you're innocent. You can enter heaven. And not only do we escape death and we gain entrance into heaven, but while we're here on this earth after salvation, we do have that sweet relationship with God. There's no feeling like being close to God and just... It's just amazing. It's impossible to describe. But there's nothing like it. No relationship closer than the relationship between God and His children. Not even between spouses. No relationship is closer, but it can only be gained through that salvation. Recognizing your sin, that you can't do anything to escape the judgment, and then putting your faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ. Nothing of your own works. All Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved. You'll escape hell. You'll gain heaven. But you'll have that relationship with God while here on this earth. And it is so amazing. I would beg you, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you do so this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we'll go into a time of 